for a Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt led film, I think as a theatrical exclusive release, this had potential to probably open to 40 or $50 million, especially if word of mouth is good on the film. Now, especially kind of entering this crowded late summer corridor and only a couple of weeks after Black Widow and Hotel Transylvania will be out there for families as an exclusive release for theaters, it, it really raises a lot of questions. This is the Box Office Podcast. I'm Daniel Luria, the editorial director of Box Office Pro, the only publication in North America exclusively dedicated to covering theatrical exhibition. Joined here by our co-hosts this week, Rebecca Pauly, the deputy editor at Box Office Pro, and Sean Robbins, our chief analyst at Box Office Pro. We've got an interesting episode this week for you guys. We have some quotes from colleagues in the industry about Cinema Week, an initiative around engaging audiences to come to the movie theaters. It's, that's coming in the late part of June. Our colleague, Rebecca Polly had a webinar with the participants and organizers of that event. So we'll be coming up with some quotes on that session later today in this episode. But before we start, a bit of news here that we have to catch up on, guys. Uh, I really don't know where to start, but let's start at the most macro of levels. Rebecca, we heard a lot of news this week coming out of several outlets surrounding Warner Brothers' parent company, Warner Media, spinning off of AT&T. What is some of that reporting indicating so far? Yeah, Warner Media is being folded into uh, Discovery, which will put them in league with a whole bunch of uh, different and varied brands, including, I think, Animal Planet and just the list of, of individual media brands under the Discovery umbrella now is, is, is really huge. And I think this was a surprising bit of news that had people wondering about the success or, or lack thereof of HBO, specifically uh, their day and date strategy with Warner Brothers 2021 slate. Given the fact that we've, we've talked about it on this podcast a lot before, the lack of transparency when it comes to streaming numbers, you know, we really can't say for sure what this means uh, as to the success of HBO or really what the impact might be on theatrical. Sean, I know that you've uh, you've commented on this in some other outlets. What does this mean for theatrical to, to give you the blunt question here? Yeah, I think it's very early days. And this is something that it may or may not have a significant impact. I know there are questions about does this affect how many studios are in play? Does this set any kind of a precedent for you know types of mergers or acquisitions that could impact major studios who do deliver theatrical content? I think our position right now is that we're really focused on the short-term recovery process. And that's that really has to happen before we can start speculating about a deal that may not be finalized for another year to a year and a half, let alone deals that might come in the wake of that. So you know, there really is no definitive answer there, I think. But uh, it's it's something that I think after the past year, you know, we, we've all learned that there, there could be a lot of evolution and adaptation to come out of this. And we'll see how it plays out. But we're 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 in step we're at step five of about 3000 to get to a point where we can really confidently discuss that. Yeah, Sean, I, I have to agree with that. I think it's hard for us to look at this news as it's being reported now and see a direct news angle here for either distribution or exhibition. It's tempting to say A leads to B. It's tempting to say this is related to day and date or HBO Max. 
but there are really so many moving parts to AT&T's investment in Warner Media in the streaming landscape that I really don't think it's that simple. Really, when it comes to this corner, I, I look at other big conglomerate investments that we've had over the years in this industry. Sony, a home electronics company buying Columbia. I'm sure there might have been a lot of concern back in the 80s. Hey, the guys that make VCRs are buying a movie studio. What does this mean for theatrical? Guess what? It really hasn't meant much. The same thing with uh, Gulf and Western, I guess, buying Paramount in the 70s, you know, a, a big oil conglomerate coming in, buying a Hollywood studio. What does this mean? At the end of the day, we're talking about massive companies making massive deals uh, to have these big conglomerates. It really just doesn't trickle down to distribution and exhibition until there's actual solid news to report. And that's not the only uh, the only rumor about which we've seen some wild speculation over the past few days. I feel like every time you blink, there's another rumor that an Amazon or an Apple or a Netflix is uh, is going to buy a studio. The rumor this time around is that Amazon would lay down an obscene amount of money for, for MGM. Uh, Daniel, we've, we've spoken about this offline, and I know that your reaction to this, I won't even call it news, let's say skeptical at best. Hey, you know, uh, these tech companies, as you know, Rebecca, it, it seems like they're always the ones coming in to buy a legacy company in Hollywood. When it comes to these big companies, they have deep pockets, they have active investments in media, and you always have to take it a little bit seriously when you see them coming about when in talks of an acquisition. When it comes to MGM, this is a company that I think for the last two years, there's been a lot of speculation about it being acquired by a streamer. For a while, it seemed like Apple was the front runner to come in and, and buy MGM. We really didn't see anything come out of that speculation, come out of those rumors. We have those rumors come back again. It's not confirmed news just yet. I wouldn't write it off entirely, but I'll believe it when I see it, because as we know, for Amazon to come in and buy a studio like MGM, they're going to be interested in those IPs. Sean, in terms of IP arsenal, what's the value that MGM comes in with for these streamers? You know, I don't want to disparage any studio's library of content, but if we're looking at MGM as a major player on some level, the first title that comes to mind is James Bond, of course. Taking that off the table, it's not as deep of a slate as, mo as most other studios, and that doesn't mean that they don't have value of their own kind. But it's a horse of a different color, I think, than when you're talking about, you know, certainly Disney buying out Fox or, or anything even related or comparable to that on any level. You know, if this comes to pass, if they can mine that value for what they see in it and, you know, and get a good deal for it, I think, you know, then we can really talk about it. I mean, MGM certainly has a, a deep bench of library content, which may be useful to Amazon as more and more streamers enter the space, as there's more and more competition from the likes of a Paramount Plus and HBO Max. But again, that's something that the, that the finances have to work out. And in other news, more to the exhibition side of things, uh, we have seen reports from Deadline that Cineworld, of course, the parent company of Regal, has signed deals with Universal and Disney. And not 
anything really outside of the ordinary, not really anything unexpected. A few weeks back, Cineworld Regal did sign a deal with Warner Brothers to release those films in the U.S. under a limited theatrical window, but at least a window and not day and date. And now we're hearing via deadline that deals have been struck with Universal and Disney. We don't know the terms of those deals, but we know that other major exhibitors in North America have struck deals of their own. Uh, Most recently, Cinemark struck a deal with five major studios, which we spoke about last week. Um, So, yeah, I mean, a repeat of, of the same thing that we've been talking about, you know, pretty much, I think, over the year plus of of this podcast, the fact that the status quo is changing with regards to windows, but these conversations between exhibitors and studios are ongoing, and there's going to be some sort of window. It's going to be shorter than the quote-unquote traditional 90 days, but it seems like everyone's kind of getting on the same page here. Uh, That, of course, ties into the Disney investor earnings call that happened last week. Daniel, the news that we got from that was, dare I say it, positive. I'm not sure I was expecting that, but I was pleasantly surprised by what came out of it that day. Yeah, I think it's it's been a 45 to 60 day window, 30 in some cases, uh, that we've really just been accustomed to seeing. And having this news that both Free Guy and Shang-Chi are going to play for a 45-day exclusivity window. Really around the news, Rebecca, as you mentioned, that both uh, Cineworld and Cinemark make those deals with Disney to continue booking those titles. I think that's that's a relatively good sign as we start to figure out what's going to be that new benchmark for theatrical exclusivity. Now, the only detail that we have to adjust our analysis on, Sean, you've been tracking theatrically the potential of something like Jungle Cruise for a while now. Now that that we see is it's going day to day, theatrical and Disney, what is it, Premier Plus extra access, but what's really going to be the impact of something like this going day and date from its theatrical exclusivity that you had been looking at previously? Well, I think it's it, we're still kind of absent any direct comparables because A, this is Disney and B, we're talking about a late summer release at this point. Black Widow will you know, very obviously kind of give us a good baseline, I think, from what to expect. But I also think it's easy to say that going from exclusively theatrical to a day and date release is going to impact the, the box office performance on some level. The question is, you know, are we talking about losing five to 10% of the potential audience, or are we talking losing half the potential audience? There's, there's just really no way to know that for sure yet. I think as we get closer and deeper into the summer, we're obviously seeing things trend upward in terms of certain genre films and certain, certain audiences coming back over time. So I wouldn't say that this is going to be another Raya type of performance at the box office. I think that's setting the bar way too low at this point for, for any kind of family movie during the summer. But you know, for a Dwayne Johnson and Emily Blunt led film, I think as a theatrical exclusive release, this had potential to, you know, probably open to 40 or $50 million, especially if word of mouth is good on the film uh, ahead of release. Now, especially kind of entering this crowded late summer corridor and only a couple of weeks after Black Widow and Hotel Transylvania will be out there for families as an exclusive release for theaters. It, it really raises a lot of questions, but I think it, it really just underlines the fact that Disney has made it known for a while now they are going to participate in the summer, but not in an exclusive kind of way. And hopefully this is that 
last lead-in to their exclusive releases in the fall. And then Free Guy coming out August 13th, Shang-Chi and the Legend of the of the Ten Rings coming out September 3rd. So as we do get into fall, I mean, I'm, I'm just so glad that the first post-Black Widow Marvel movie is going to get some sort of theatrical exclusivity. I was surprised, but pleased, let's say. Do you guys think that something like Jungle Cruise has the potential to become a franchise. We know Disney is all about those franchises, all about those IPs that they own. That's part of their theme park, right? An interconnected thing where you have the ride, you have the TV show on Disney plus you have the movie. Is this something that has that potential? Do you think there's something there here? Jumanji did it. I mean, that for me is the the kind of comparable nostalgia legacy property that, well, I mean, granted Jumanji, really exceeded everyone's expectations at the box office thus during that sequel. And we don't know what Jungle Cruise is going to do. But I mean, you got the power of nostalgia and you got the power of Dwayne Johnson. I, I think the possibilities in a normal year would be pretty limitless. Yeah. And, and, and you know, another even older, well, maybe not older, uh, a few years after the original Jumanji, but it's clear that I think Disney kind of hopes this is their next Pirates of the Caribbean uh, ride to film franchise transition. And you know, just like Rebecca said, when you have the star power of Johnson and Blunt, I mean, I think the two of them together, like the, the studio is pitching this as kind of a, a classic throwback Indiana Jones type fun adventure. And if it plays well, you know, maybe it can still start a franchise. Maybe we're talking about Jungle Cruise 2, two or three years from now going to theaters. Who knows? But yeah, I think that's, it's, there's certainly potential there. It's a risk. You know, I don't think that there's been this much, and maybe this is overstating it, but I think there is... It's not a known quantity, say like Mulan, which is a live action remake, and we have some comparison points, right? Here, I think, as you guys mentioned, Pirates of the Caribbean is probably what Disney is aiming for. But this is the type of movie that could very well end up to a John Carter or a Lone Ranger, right? If things don't work out the right way, I feel like Disney hasn't made a movie like this that has this much, quote unquote, writing on it since those two movies really fizzled at the box office. To your question on franchises, uh, Daniel, Disney CEO Bob Chapek was actually asked about that at the earnings call, about his thoughts on theatrical versus streaming and their respective potential to really generate and build a franchise. And his response was, you know, kind of towing the line as one does in an investor call and saying like, yeah, I get where you're coming. Theatrical is is great for building franchises, but look what we did with The Mandalorian. You know, that was exclusively a, a Disney Plus property. Obviously, it's a TV show and not a movie, but you know, that blew up and it's leading to so many other things and made so much money on, you know, Baby Yoda merchandise. That said, I mean, I think absent from his answer is the fact that The Mandalorian was not the start of the Star Wars franchise. It had kind of been cooking along there for a few decades, but he did seem to believe or, or express that exclusively appearing on Disney Plus is not necessarily a bar to having franchise potential. We'll see where that goes. And talking about franchises, we had the opening weekend of a, I guess, a franchise spinoff, a franchise continuation with Spiral coming out from Lionsgate, trying to revive that Saw horror movie IP that's been dormant for a while. Sean, what are your initial impressions of that film's performance in its opening weekend? I think the takeaway for me is, first of all, it, it seemed to overtrack a little bit, even though everything is relative in terms of what that means right now. But yeah, to open to 8.75 million, basically in line with what Wrath of Man did the week before, 
kind of looking at this, if it were an original type of film, it probably would have made that much. And if it were a saw film releasing at the height of that franchise's popularity, maybe it performs better. I think the tough sell here really hit on several factors. You know, number one, the saw name was not upfront. It's buried deep down from the book of saw in a subtitling. So not the, not maybe the greatest kind of marketing strategy there in terms of bringing back fans of that franchise. This is also a franchise that's own fans thought ended twice in the last decade. So <laughs> There's some diminished returns and kind of burnt out feelingness there, but also I think maybe kind of a broader psychological, you know, telltale sign of what people want to go see at movies here right now is coming out of a year going to be approaching year and a half long pandemic soon, maybe going to see a gruesome psychological thriller that is very light, if not empty of, of actual, you know, comedy, like, you know, maybe a Bloomhouse film. It probably isn't going to be high on the list. Of first choices to go see. And this weekend kind of showed that. So what does that mean for A Quiet Place Part 2 then? Granted, That's it's, a not, fair question. it's not in the same horror genre of gross I don't body think it's horror. the same. Yeah. I, I, honestly, I look at something like A Quiet Place Part 2, which doesn't come in with the baggage of, what was it, seven films that really the word I associate with Saw are two words, torture porn which probably aren't the two words you want associated with your IP in a return to cinema capacity. A Quiet Place Part Two, we're talking about it last week, Rebecca, how it's gonna be, it's gonna be a, a horrible weekend for nacho sales at the movies because you, everyone's in on it in that auditorium, right? You all want to be quiet as the movie's going on. I think it's a completely different uh, comparison, but I think that's a fair question. Sean, do you think there's anything to be concerned about coming after this weekend? I think we have to consider it. It is a different kind of film. You know, A, it's it's a PG-13 movie with very, I think, a, a wider audience. It's a, I guess you can call it a franchise now, to a, a movie that was just really, really well-liked a few years ago. And it's not coming, you know, 10 years after the fact. I think a three-year window after a, a hit movie is actually perfect, especially for a movie like Quiet Place. But, you know, on the flip side, it's a movie about a real-world disaster. Are people really going to be as hungry to see that as they would have been a little over a year ago, because we do have to remember that movie was almost about to come out. It was tracking really well. It probably most likely would have opened close to the first film's 50 plus million. That's going to be a very, if it hits that, then we're going to have some, some very fun headlines to write in a couple of weeks. But at this point, I would say, especially with what we've seen performance wise from other movies in the market, generally earning maybe two thirds to 70% of what we would normally expect them to open to pre-pandemic, you know, maybe a 40 to 50 million four-day weekend is possible if everything really hits on all cylinders. Pre-sales are good. I wouldn't say that they're anywhere near as strong as Godzilla versus Kong, but this is also a different genre. And, you know, you know, Godzilla had a lot of very fervent fans that wanted tickets immediately. Horror movies, even horror sequels, don't usually pop until like that last week of release. So a lot of stuff to watch, I think, over the next like 10 days. So I'm still you know, pretty confident, I think, in its appeal, but I do think we have to brace for maybe the possibility that it is going to be a little bit too real of a disaster movie, even if it is fun relative to Spiral. So we can maybe see another Tenet-type situation where the headlines, if this movie doesn't exceed all expectations, are, oh, it failed, oh, people don't want to come back to the movies. You know, we have to moderate our expectations here is, is what I'm what I'm hearing. I absolutely would. Yeah, I think that's that's kind of the tough spot we have to be in because as, as confident as I think I am and I th you know a lot of us want to be in certain movies that we've kind of hyped up as being the key ones to watch, it's the responsible thing to do for all of us 
covering this industry right now because you never know what can happen. And I think outside of anything that's truly four quadrant and popcorn adrenaline fun, kind of like Black Widow and F9 later this summer, outside of those, there are just so many different scenarios that can play out for certain films right now. I mean, we have seen some some marketing come along um, over the past few days. The MTV Movie and TV Awards have come out. Studios spent some money to get some some new clips, some new trailers out there for upcoming releases. I'm not the box office analyst here, but I think In the Heights is exactly that sort of fun summer. I think it's going to make a ton of money. That's my official uh, number analysis is a ton. Yeah, I think that's that's really one. And it was promoted pretty heavily during the uh, MTV Movie Awards over the weekend, as was Quiet Place. Of course, Viacom owns MTV and Paramount, so it's understandable they would push that a lot. But for the Warner Brothers, it's not owned by Viacom. So to see that film getting the promotion that it is is a really encouraging sign. And talking about audiences coming back to movie theaters, Rebecca, a couple of weeks ago, you were able to host a live webinar with the organizers of Cinema Week, which is a special promotion nationwide here in the United States to start engaging moviegoers to come back to the cinemas, to start enjoying going to the movies again. We've got some highlights from that session. Could you give us a quick rundown of what Cinema Week is? Cinema Week is going to be a six-day event this summer running from June 22nd through the 27th. It is kind of designed to be the phrase one of the organizer, Brandon Jones, used is tip of the spear, you know, kind of coming ahead of all the big glut of, of Hollywood releases that we're going to get. And what the event is, is it's really encouraging studios, exhibitors, talent to really remind people why they love going to the movies with special events, special promotions. You know, the the organizers of this event really realize that there's no one size fits all solution in terms of getting people back to the cinemas. So it's really, you know, this communal effort that exists to really uh, pump up cinemas as we approach this all important first I don't know, it's not a post-COVID summer, that feels odd to say, but the summer comeback period. But, you know, uh, someone who can explain it better than I can is Brandon Jones of Film Frog Marketing, one of the key organizers behind Cinema Week. So uh, I'll let Brandon take it away here. We're exhibitors. You know, we're, we've been in the exhibitor marketing space for a long time, and we really wanted to focus in on how do we do something that the entire industry could rally around um, and we were really inspired by a few things. The Independent Cinema Alliance put together an event in January 2020, right before the pandemic, called Love Local Cinema that, that Rich was spearheading. And we saw things like the Great American Takeout and Restaurant Week and American Express Shop Small. So as we were investigating those those movements and those initiatives, we really thought, you know, what does that look like in the movie theater space? And really intuitively, we said, well, let's do something like a cinema week. And we went through an entire naming convention and we really just fell back to cinema week says what it is. It's a moment to rally around both from an exhibition standpoint and how do you make that your own and how do you activate that in your theaters? And then also, how do we get support from studios and how do we get support from vendors and people who rely on movie going um, as their livelihood? So Cinema Week was born, really born in September, and we've been working one-to-one almost with the associations, the Independent Cinema Alliance, with NATO, with 
as many exhibitors as we can talk to one-to-one, as well as the studios who to get their involvement because they're the best content creators in the world. So we need some, we need to make some movie magic happen. And that was really how it all came together. And that was Brandon Jones from Film Frog Marketing. Actually, Brandon Jones, is there like a little special effect? We can do like a sound effect of some sort. Yay, because he's actually our first repeat guest here on the podcast. We've been doing it for over a year. I'm surprised this is the first time we bring someone back. The same applies to Rich Dottridge, who you will hear from later. But moving on uh, with this session, we had some insights from Melissa Boudreau, also from Film Frog Marketing, around what exhibitors can do to help engage these audiences as they're preparing for Cinema Week. And a quick plug, actually, if you're interested in attending the next live webinar that we're organizing, so you can hear all of these quotes live, we'll be having another edition of these sessions on May 25th at 9 a.m. Pacific, 12 p.m. noon. You can register for that on our website, boxofficepro.com. Click on the live sessions link on the top left-hand side of the webpage, and you'll be able to register for that session. And Melissa Bedreau, who you're about to hear from, she'll be there as well. You know, I think it's telling your story about your chain or what you're doing in your community. And even that week, pointing out the things, you know, we have some partners that have been open for 100 years and they're local and community focused. And I think that sometimes consumers don't understand that, right? They think that every theater chain is just this huge conglomerate. And there's nothing wrong with that either. But telling your story, why is your location special? What amenities do you offer? You know, do you have heated recliners? Do you offer beer and wine? What special things are people experiencing in your location? And then in Cinema Week, really elevating those experiences. So can you set up just a red carpet and make it feel really special or have someone greeting all of the guests at the door? What are these like little things that can really elevate the experience, make it feel special? Mm -hmm. And I think there's just some little things like that that can help the consumer really feel like this is a special event, this is a special occurrence. Mm -hmm. And we are working on a toolkit as well. So we will be publishing a toolkit for exhibition to just kind of help and give them tools and things that they can do in their community. You know, if you know of anyone locally that wants to come, you know, surprise everybody in your auditorium or something along those lines, those are great things that you can do as well. But really to answer that question is highlighting the things that are great in your chain, your one screen theater, what are the things that you do that are really special? And I think that we all can do a better job of telling those stories. And to extend that plug a little bit, I think what we're going to be discussing in this webinar and really something that's incredibly relevant to Cinema Week and and something that we've discussed on this podcast before is the need for exhibitors to really uh, almost rethink from the ground up their marketing strategy and how they approach marketing and to really for the theaters to take the initiative and promote themselves rather than relying on the studios to be there and provide content and provide trailers and provide clips. And I mean, that that really is, I think, a main impetus behind Cinema Week is to encourage these cinemas uh, to get creative in how they market themselves and 
hearing from Rich Dottridge here, another repeat guest of the Box Office Podcast. Uh, he's an exhibitor through Maryland's Warehouse Cinemas, and then he is also in charge of marketing at the Independent Cinema Alliance. And, and he really spoke to the need of exhibitors, you know, independence and really all the way across the board to get creative in how they think about engaging with their community and promoting their brand. There is a lift that has to happen from the exhibitor as well. So a little bit of tough love for a second. Like mm-hmm. it's not, we're, we're so used to the studios marketing the films and people show up, right? I think this pandemic has forced exhibitors to think differently, to think smarter about marketing, but also do a little lifting at the same time, right? So call your local radio station, give them the templates that Cinema Week will have on their website and just ask for a PSA. Go to the go to the newspaper, ask them to write a story about it, go to the other, go to all the local media outlets and do some of that lifting. I think that's a little bit of a challenge to the industry because we're not used to doing that. And that was Rich Dautridge from Warehouse Cinemas and also in the marketing committee of the Independent Cinema Alliance, one of the co-organizers of Cinema Week coming to theaters nationwide starting on Tuesday, June 22nd and running through that following Sunday. So it's going to be five days for consumers nationwide to get engaged, to get connected with their local cinemas. Guys, I think this is a great initiative, especially as we look at those examples that Brandon Jones was talking about. Restaurant week is something very popular here in New York. I always try out new restaurants, new dishes that I wouldn't traditionally do. I'm I'm really excited for this initiative. So thanks again to our guests at Cinema Week, uh, Rich Dautrich, Melissa Boudreaux, and Brandon Jones, and to our co-hosts, Rebecca Polly and Sean Robbins. The Box Office Podcast is recorded by Box Office Pro in association with the Box Office Company and produced by Record Edit Podcast. Tune in next week on Thursday for a new episode of the Box Office Podcast. Thanks again. Thanks again.